If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1965, a Scottish doctor named Ewan Forbes stood to inherit his family's baronetcy. But as a transgender man, he soon became embroiled in a top-secret legal case with the potential to rock British society to its core, and which transformed the experiences of transgender people for decades to come. Zoe Playden explores this story in her new book, The Hidden Case of Ewan Forbes, and she spoke to our deputy editor, Matt Elton. Zoe, could you just start by uh, just saying a few sentences about what this story we're telling today is? So this is uh, about... A case, a legal case, that was heard in the 1960s that was considered to be so explosive that it was removed from public view. Everyone involved in it was sworn to secrecy and it didn't surface for another 30 years. It concerned a trans man, Ewan Forbes, who inherited a primogenitor title. In other words, a title that can only be legally inherited by a man. Ewan was a trans boy, born in 1912. He received affirmative medical care in the late 1920s and 1930s, so he avoided going through the wrong puberty. He subsequently corrected his birth certificate, married and lived in complete equality, happy and content, until he was 53 years old, when a cousin challenged him for the inheritance of this primogenitor baronetcy on the grounds that Ewan wasn't a real man. This led to the court case in 1967, heard in camera, and which Ewan eventually won, and all details of which were removed from the public eye. And the case was a tipping point for trans people, actually trans people worldwide, it turned out. Before Ewan, if you were trans, then you self-identified, you received affirmative medical care, corrected your birth certificate, and lived in complete equality with everyone else. After Ewan, trans people were stripped of their civil liberties, were socially excluded, and subjected to a medical regime that defined them as mentally ill, and treated them with conversion therapies, things like aversion conditioning, uh, electroconvulsive therapy, frontal lobotomy, psychotherapy, exorcism even, corrective rape, Uh, and uh, then uh, compulsory sterilisation. We all know about Oscar Wilde and how important that case was for gay people. Well, Ewan's case is the Oscar Wilde trial for trans people, but it was hidden. And there's so much to unpack there. It's such a fascinating, heartbreaking story in in many, many ways. Um, I think I wanted to start, first of all, one of the things your book does, uh, it doesn't lose sight of the sort of individual at the heart of this story. It would be amazing just to talk through a little bit um, about Ewan's early life um, and how his circumstances were viewed and understood at the time that he was growing up, I suppose. So 
Ewan was the youngest son of an aristocratic family, the Forbes Semples, whose home was in the Scottish Highlands. They weren't grand, they weren't dukes or marquises, but their titles were amongst the oldest Scottish titles. They owned a 20,000-acre uh, estate that includes the iconic Craig of Our Castle, which is still a very popular tourist destination. And they were very distinguished by a history of service to and friendship with the monarchy. So Ewan's grandfather was an intimate friend of Queen Victoria, his father was aide-de-camp to King George V, and his mother was a friend of Queen Mary. And together with a social network that included the international avant-garde, Ezra Pound, Ivan Novello, Sinclair Lewis, and the European aristocratic and crowned elite, the Queen of Spain was a visitor there, this made them very well connected and as well as very wealthy. And this is the world that Ewan is born into. By the time he's six, his mother, Gwendolyn, the Lady Semple, realised he was a boy, even though he'd been assigned female at birth. Instead of sending him to boarding school like his siblings, she homeschooled him, let him wear the riding breeches or kilt that he preferred, and allowed him to play as he wished. And we know now that it's crucial for trans children to live in their proper gender role, but Gwendolyn was years ahead of her time. Well, like the caring parents of all trans children, Gwendolyn was anxious that Ewan shouldn't go through the wrong puberty. And of course, in the 1920s, they didn't have the puberty blockers that we have now to buy time with. But in Berlin, Magnus Hirschfeld had been providing affirmative care for trans people since 1919 at his Institute for Sexual Science, and research was being carried out into producing synthetic hormones, testosterone and oestrogen. So Gwendolyn calls into play all of these fabulous family connections. And in the disguise of it being a European cultural tour, she took Ewan to see specialist clinicians in Dresden, Prague, Vienna, Budapest and Paris. And Ewan was a guinea pig for early testosterone. So that like trans adolescents today, he went through the right puberty. And that sounds fantastic, and it was, I mean, utterly amazing. But it wasn't all plain sailing for Ewan. The price he had to pay for this remarkable affirmative medical care was to stick to the family's code of duty. In practice, this meant that when it was required on some formal occasions, Ewan had to dress and behave like a girl. And in particular, when he was already taking testosterone, and growing facial and chest hair, he had to be presented at court as a debutante, wearing the long white dress, with the train, with the flowers in his hair, curtsying to the Queen. Now, of course, today we'd see this as an absolutely abusive cruelty, likely to cause lifelong damage, but this gap between private and public life was one Ewan had to negotiate and had to manage. Imaginatively, he did that by forming a Highland dance team, the Dancers of Don, in which he always danced the male part, so that he could appear in public and be applauded for it in male dress. And he was very good at thinking of ways round problems. That's fascinating, and I think really illuminating about his character. What else do we learn about his personality um, through the course of this book? Well, he was a very caring guy. Uh, during World War II, he went to Aberdeen Medical School and in 1945, he started work as a family doctor in the little local town of Arford. And there were still people living there 
who remember being his patients. And he had a reputation for being kind and caring, especially with children. And he also had this reputation for toughness and determination. A lot of his patients lived in remote hill farms. And whatever the weather, Ewan guaranteed to get there. By skis, by snowshoes, by horseback, and sometimes by driving in this Caterpillar Tract ex-Special Forces Studebaker M29 weasel vehicle that he bought. And he was this interesting combination of tough and kind. Then, in 1952, when he was attending one of his patients, he met a woman called Patty Mitchell, fell in love with her, and wanted to marry. So he corrected his birth certificate. You could, in those days, anyone, not anyone, any trans person could correct their birth certificate, uh, and married, and uh, lived happily together. They'd bought a little estate at a place called Brooks, a lovely thing, just caught in a loop of the River Don with hills and farmland and moors. Um, And in 1956, Ewan became a silent partner in the medical practice, moved to Brooks with Patty, and uh, was really happy there. Until, on the 30th of December 1965, Ewan's brother died, and the family baronetcy became vacant. And this led to the pivotal hidden case and to potential disaster for Ewan. One of the uh, cruel ironies, I suppose, about this story is the same wealth and connections that had provided him with the the, the resources and the expertise that were needed to help also, I suppose, in some ways, led to this awful situation. Can you talk us through what happened and um, the impact that it had on him, I suppose? Well, the key to the case is that the forebears of Craigavar baronetcy were subject to male line primogenitor, the law that says certain aristocratic titles and estates can only be inherited by a man and never by a woman. Um, The popular press calls it the Downton Abbey law, and listeners might well remember the television historical drama which ran a storyline dealing with the primogenitor disinheritance of an elder daughter. Well, primogenitor also decided the British monarchy until the succession to the Crown Act 2013 gave princes and princesses equal inheritance rights. So primogenitor was a very big deal in constitutional law because constitutional law is crucially concerned with securing the succession to the throne. A primogenitor baronetcy wasn't just a simple, relatively cadet title its decision had implications for the monarchy. With bearing this in mind, at the funeral of his brother, Ewan's cousin, John, turned up. This is the first time the family's ever seen him. And John tells Ewan that he is going to claim the baronetcy on the grounds that Ewan isn't, in inverted commas, a real man. Now, this idea that some people counted as real men or real women had been current in 1930s Germany when Magnus Hirschfeld's institute was sacked by Nazi brown shirts, its books and photographs burned publicly. Ewan just got out of Germany before those atrocities. But hearing that idea repeated must have been absolutely chilling for him. And what's worse, as a doctor, Ewan knew that the medical classification of trans people was about to change. For decades, 
trans people had been categorised as a variation of sex development, an intersex condition. But in the United States, a group of psychiatrists were creating a new pseudoscience. These people, notably John Money, Richard Green and Robert Stoller, were busy claiming that being trans was a mental illness caused by inadequate parenting, probably the fault of the mother, of course, and that they could cure it. In 1962, the first gender identity research clinic was opened at the University of California, Los Angeles, to cure trans and gay people by a range of measures, you know, aversion conditioning using emetics or electric shocks, frontal lobotomy, psychotherapy, electroconvulsive therapy, and so forth. Other centres had followed suits across the US, and suddenly a turf war broke out between endocrinology, who'd been successfully providing affirmative hormone treatment to trans people for decades, and this new pseudo-medicine espoused by this group of gender-critical psychiatrists. Well, psychiatry won that war. There's a great book um, by a woman called um, uh, Joanna Meyerowitz uh, called How Sex Changed, which describes that, uh, uh, that fight. Psychiatry had won, and it was now busy starting to export its practices to the UK. In this new medical classification, Ewan would be classified as a floridly psychotic lesbian who had gone through a perjured ceremony of marriage. He and Patty would be due two years in prison each. He'd be struck off from the medical register. They'd be publicly shamed and their lives would be over. So this is a very, very desperate situation that he finds himself in. We'll move on to the court case in a minute. I just wanted to talk about that that enormous shift in how trans identities and trans lives were viewed, because that that's an enormous change that happened. And I, I don't think I was aware of how pivotal that moment was. Was the fact this new psychiatric labelling so uh, influential? Was that just caused by um, just a change in sort of views or were there things in place that meant that it was really influential? Well, again, it's one of those ironies that at the point at which um, uh, gay rights were increasingly being won, it's as though there was a need for a new scapegoat. And uh, suddenly, uh, ironically, at the point, certainly in the UK, the Criminal Law Amendment Act in 1967, uh, that point marked a partial decriminalisation of gay men and heralded a new social exclusion of trans people. So it was just the, the big arguing point in medicine was over etiology. What makes people trans or gay? And uh, since uh, the endocrinologists couldn't demonstrate the etiology, the psychiatrists claimed that they could. They said that there was a gender gate swinging to and fro somewhere in everyone and that you had to get through it. They weren't quite sure by what age. Sometimes they said two and a half, sometimes three, sometimes five or six. But they were clear that there was this gender gate and uh, if you didn't get through it on the right side, then you would end up as being trans or gay. The reason you didn't get through was because of inadequate parenting and they could um, form, carry out this reparative therapy that would kind of open the gate again and push you through and bring you out on the right side so that if you'd been uh, assigned male at birth, then you would now be 
male and masculine and heterosexual, and female equivalently. Now, this is an idea that stayed on and on and on. We go to 1983 and we find Richard Green publishing The Sissy Boy Syndrome uh, from Harvard University, declaring precisely these same principles that had been developed 20 or 30 years uh, earlier. So it's as though a kind of um, a social anxiety, a sort of a moral panic about the decriminalisation of uh, gay men uh, was uh, visited uh, on trans people who were made its kind of scapegoat and whipping girl. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think the most surprising thing about the book for many people has been learning that not so long ago, if you were trans, you self-identified, you got affirmative medical care of your choice, you corrected your birth certificate, you got on with your lives. And now all of those things have been turned by some strange process into impossibilities and moral panics and things to be terrified of. We should talk then about the court case. And you mentioned the fact that this was held in secret. Um, What did that actually mean for the way in which it was carried out? Let Let me first of all just kind of explain how it came to be heard in secret, really. Yeah. So... We left Ewan in a difficult position, terrified really about what was going to happen to him. And the first thing that Ewan did was to try to buy off his cousin. He said, if you don't put in for the baronetcy, I'll give you all of the Craig of our estates. Now, the castle by then belonged to the National Trust for Scotland and there had been some depredations due to war. But, you know, the remains of a 20,000 acre estate were considerable. Um, And John said, OK, and uh, Ewan thought they had an agreement. But secretly, John had decided to go for the baronetcy anyway, and he bribed Ewan's estranged older sister to write him a letter, saying that Ewan, to her certain knowledge, was and always had been female. A letter like that could be persuasive evidence in law. And in August 1966, John served a summons on Ewan to take him to court to prove that Ewan is, quote, now and has all along been of the female sex in the physical, anatomical, physiological and genetic meanings of the term. So Ewan finds out that he's got to go to court and subsequently he finds, to his horror, that his old sister has written this dreadful letter. He reconciles with her. She says she can't take it back, but really that doesn't matter because she can stand up in court and say, oh, well, I was paid for it and told what to write and all of its forces gone. But then on the way to visit Ewan, driving down a road that she'd driven down hundreds of times before in her Land Rover, she met a lorry and a car head on and was killed instantly. So that evidence, her help to Ewan was gone. However, she had persuaded John to agree to have the court hearing heard in private. Uh, Ewan's sister was herself a lesbian and perhaps it occurred to her that uh, if Ewan and Patty attracted press attention, uh, she and her partner Joan wouldn't be far behind. Uh, In any event, John agreed to um, have the court hearing in camera in return for Ewan undergoing a medical examination by John's own uh, named uh, clinicians. So... Uh, You were at uh, Edinburgh Court of Session 
uh, on, if I remember rightly, the 15th of, uh, of May, Ewan turned up for the court hearing. And there was a court journalist who was absolutely outraged by being able to get no information whatsoever about this case. He was so angry that when the judgment was finally uh, given, he wrote a little article for the Glasgow Herald, Concern Over Secrecy in the Forbes Semple Case. That was the only report, the only newspaper report of the case. Uh, and without it, I'd never have found the case. So I was really pleased that George Webb, his name was, was, was cross about this. It's a hearing over four days. It's medical evidence presented first by John Side and then by Ewan Side. It looks impossible, frankly, for Ewan. He has gone to the medical examination as demanded by John. The medical examination was carried out by the most senior anatomist of his day, Professor Strong. And in uh, the new year of uh, 1967, the report arrived and it declared Ewan unequivocally female. So what could you possibly do? Well, to find out exactly what Ewan did do, you would either have to read the 500-page um, court proceedings or the book. <laughs> it was the most astonishing, and it is too detailed for me to even really try to summarise here, but suffice it to say, it was an audacious, imaginative defence, remarkably carried out by a man whose back was absolutely against the wall and who was fighting for his life and the life of his wife. Crucial to uh, Ewan winning his case was evidence given by a guy called Professor Martin Roth. He was the most eminent psychiatrist of his day. He was a rigorous scientist and the first president of the Royal College of Psychiatry. And Roth viewed being trans as a natural variation in sex characteristics. Uh, he said it was the result of an underlying constitutional basis that determined what he called psychological intersex. And that evidence turned out to be crucial in, uh, uh, in Ewan winning. Did, did Ewan and did the people involved in this case know the reasons that it had to be kept so secret? I'm sure they must have done. So they, it, I, I suppose in a way that must have only added to the pressure in that you've got the whole mechanism of the state and, and, and kind of medicine. And also you've got this idea that it's linked to this really big sort of theoretical issue. Did that have an impact, do you think? Oh, yes. Um, the, it wasn't simply a matter of uh, winning in court. Uh, the case was then referred to the Home Secretary, James Callaghan. Um, and I think we might guess that it's unlikely that a Labour Home Secretary would be allowed to decide on a matter like primogenitor that would fundamentally affect constitutional law. Possible, perhaps even probable, that uh, the issue was kicked up to the Prime Minister and who knows whether or not it was part of the unmitted meetings between the PM uh, and the Queen. Uh, certainly, the decision was finally made in Ewan's favour, and in so doing, it created a political crisis. If a trans man could inherit a primogenitor baronetcy, then a trans man could become king. This means that the line of succession to the throne was now clouded. A royal baby, assigned female at birth, might turn out to be a boy and take the throne. Or a baby assigned male at birth might turn out to be a girl and lose it. And bear in mind, this is 
the key purpose of constitutional law is to secure exactly these things. So to make sure that Ewan's case couldn't be used as a precedent for other subsequent trans cases, all records of it were removed from public view, the press was closed down, and everyone involved in it was sworn to secrecy, and it would be 30 years before it was forced back into sight, and decades longer, really, before its full significance was realised. And meanwhile, the powers that be, and again, we don't know who, of course, we never do know who, but the powers that be knew they had to do something to make sure the trans people couldn't upset the primogeniture apple cart again. Do you mind talking us through how how, how they did that? No, um, it's again a shocking story. So, in brief, in 1970, trans people had their civil liberties removed, were declared incurably mentally ill, and were subject to a medical regime that included aversion therapy and compulsory sterilisation. Ewan's case was the motivation for change, but the mechanism was the much better known case of April Ashley, the model and actress who went through a ceremony of marriage with Arthur Corbett, son and heir of Lord Rowallan, in 1963. April and Ashley's relationship didn't work. Arthur hadn't handed over a villa in Marbella to April that he promised her, and April was very badly advised to sue him for maintenance. She was badly advised because she hadn't corrected her birth certificate. Lots of people didn't because they didn't realise the significance it was going to have. Uh, And so the marriage was void right from the start. There was no legal marriage and no maintenance due. Arthur, who was son and heir of Lord Rowallan, could just have ignored her. But instead, on the 15th of May 1967, the very same day that Ewan went into court, Arthur filed a petition for divorce from April on the grounds that she was and always had been male. It's a mirror image of the case that Ewan was defending. Well, the judge in April's trial, Lord Ormrod, had heard a similar case of a cis person marrying a trans person who hadn't corrected their birth certificate only a few weeks earlier. And he simply dismissed that case, Talbot versus Talbot, out of hand on the grounds that the supposed marriage had been void from the start. But in the case of April and Arthur, April was forced to undergo a series of humiliating medical examinations and to submit to 14 days of trial. She lost the case. She presented the same medical evidence that Ewan presented in terms of medical expertise and their views that being trans was, you know, uh, a variation of sex characteristics. She lost the case and the judge created a circular argument that proved, supposedly, that trans women weren't real women, but were really floridly psychotic gay men. Suddenly, silently, without any debate in Parliament or new legislation or statutes being passed, trans people lost their civil liberties. They couldn't marry or adopt. They were stripped of employment rights so that they could be sacked just for being trans. And if they were then unable to pay their car parking fines, They were sent to the wrong sex prison where trans women certainly were raped without it counting legally as rape. Instead of affirmative medical care, they were conscripted into an NHS regime of aversion therapy, years of abusive so-called treatment by psychiatrists such as John Randall and his colleagues at Charing Cross Hospital, which ended for the lucky ones who managed to jump through the hoops with compulsory sterilisation. And that was the legal status quo until 1996, 
when a landmark case in the European Court of Justice restored trans people's employment rights. It wasn't until 2002 that government finally recognised that being trans wasn't a mental illness. The thing that strikes me about all of that is 2002 is, I mean, that's less than 20 years ago. This is so recently. And even even as you were saying, that court case that happened in 1969, that's the same period that we often talk about in terms of, as you've said, legislation for same-sex people. Um, why, and we've talked a bit about this, but why do you think the, the uh, narrative of trans history and of trans people's uh, rights goes so far in the opposite direction. Do you know, I think what we're looking at here is um, uh, this difference between history and social memory. You know, it is, after all, the job of historians to say to the world at large, well, here are the facts of the matter. This is what the records tell us actually happened. And much of the time, uh, that's quite against what people remember happening or thought happened um, or just were never told happened. I, I remember when I was at school, we were never told a thing about um, England's um, uh, subjugation of Irish people, for example. Um, and certainly with all of the films that we watched on television, all of the Westerns with Hopalong Cassidy and The Lone Ranger and so on, there was no indication that what we were seeing was systematic genocide of um, Indigenous peoples. So I think that people simply... Honestly, I think people just don't know. I think the most surprising thing about the book for many people has been learning that not so long ago, if you were trans, you self-identified, you got affirmative medical care of your choice, you corrected your birth certificate, you got on with your lives. And now all of those things have been turned by some strange process into impossibilities and moral panics and things to be terrified of. It's really, it's ignorance, I suppose. And after all, that is the job of uh, historians is to try to help with that stuff. I want to end by asking two sort of interrelated questions. What's Ewan's story after the point that we've left him? Well, he goes back to Brooks. He goes back to his farm. He is experiencing symptoms that now I think we would interpret as post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. It was an appalling time for him. Uh, he becomes uh, a bit more difficult. He is um, more reclusive, uh, more suspicious of people. Eventually, he writes a little memoir, The Old Days, it's called, um, which is this lovely little selection of um, uh, after-dinner stories. He makes no mention of the court case or of the circumstances uh, that gave rise to it. He still loves Craig Var and will turn up there um, when the tourists have gone, uh, perhaps round about October, he'll go up uh, to the castle and the fire will be made up uh, for him. And he'll sit there uh, reading the books um, uh, from his past. And then when the fire's burned down and he's finished his glass of whiskey, he'll go over to, um, uh, to the mains, the castle's um, uh, domestic buildings, and have bacon and eggs there with the keepers uh, and then go home. He likes to drive up... Uh, in the Land Rover to um, a, a little cottage. It's the gamekeeper's cottage uh, near Leakokoshni, where uh, his brother and ancestors are buried. He'll drive along the forest track there, uh, see his niece who uh, lives there during the summer, and look out, I guess, over the lands and remember. 
You mentioned earlier the fact that Oscar Wilde and his story is emblematic and has become so well known. How would you like listeners and readers of your book to understand this individual's story and what it tells us about the wider experiences of trans people over the past hundred years? It's a story of endurance, of kindness, of toughness and of faithfulness. And I think those are all qualities that are needed by trans people, by trans communities now today when things should be getting better uh, and in fact they don't seem to be. And uh, obviously your book is fantastic. Are there other histories that you would recommend that people turn to to find out more about this subject? Uh, a really nice um, a really nice accessible book is Julia Serrano's Whipping Girl. Uh, very recently, um, uh, Sean Fay has um, uh, published The Transgender Question. That's really good. If people are interested in um, uh, historical novels, uh, then Jodie Rosenberg's Confessions of the Fox is a remarkable piece of work. There's an awful lot of information out there. And the great news is that with this new generation of trans people who uh, have grown up with a measure of civil liberties, not equality, there's nothing like trans equality at the moment, but still a measure of civil liberties and an understanding of life that goes beyond this binary male-female system. That was Zoe Playden. Her book, The Hidden Case of Ewan Forbes, is out now, published by Bloomsbury. Zoe has written a feature on this story for the Christmas issue of BBC History Revealed magazine, which is on sale from the 25th of November. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. (laughs) 